the massive sanctions imposed by Western countries on Russia and its oligarchs in retaliation for this brutal invasion of Ukraine are all based on something called the Magnitsky Act. This was uh, the work of one man, Bill Browder, uh, who responded to the murder of his lawyer in a Russian prison. His name was Sergei Magnitsky. And this is to freeze the assets of those people who are involved in these kinds of crimes and human rights violations. Mr. Browder wrote a book about all of that called Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. But the fight continues and he has now written a sequel, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. And welcome, and, and I guess I must say, Mr. Browder, I'm amazed every time I turn a television on and see you, that you are in fact surviving Mr. Putin's wrath so far. How are you doing that? Well, it's it's been a, uh, a, a shocking, horrible decade of cat and mouse, of David yep. versus Goliath. <clears throat> They've come after me in every possible way. Uh, the, they've, they've issued death threats, kidnapping threats, uh, arrest warrants, Interpol arrest warrants. I was in Davos at the World mm -hmm. Economic Forum and um, the, um, your current uh, finance minister, Christian Freeland at that time was a journalist and she was meeting with Dmitry Medvedev, who was the prime minister of Russia. And she asked him about the Magnitsky murder. And he said, it's too bad that um, Sergei Magnitsky is dead and Bill Browder is still alive and running around. Uh, the general prosecutor of Russia publicly announced Bill Browder shouldn't sleep peacefully at night. Yeah. Uh, and, and then Donald Trump, or Putin was meeting with Donald Trump at the Helsinki summit, and Putin asked Trump personally to hand me over. And so these people have been chasing me around for a long time. Um, it hasn't been easy. I've, I've had to fight off all sorts of different types yeah. of attacks, both physical, uh, legal and and uh, informational, but um, here I am, <laughs> twelve years after Sergei Magnitsky was killed, well, I'm still, still here. You've got a strong family to support you in this, because of course uh, they're a, a threat as well. I'm going to get into the details of this book. There you can see it, the freezing order. It's already on the bestsellers list uh, internationally, not surprisingly. But some of the things that you've been saying have really um, captured my mind. We think of, and, and the media tends to talk about Vladimir Putin as being some kind of military mastermind, that uh, a strategic genius trained by the KGB. Your argument is he's a crime boss, a common thug, and this war is just a sideshow uh, for him. Just explain that a little more. Well, one of the things which um, <clears throat> which I did after Sergei Magnitsky was killed was to try to figure out where the $230 million government corruption scheme money went. And as we investigated it, <clears throat> we discovered that it was just one of literally a thousand similar crimes committed by corrupt officials, that Vladimir Putin got a cut of every one of those crimes, and that or in total, if you were to add up all the money stolen from the Russian people in a 22-year period, um, it was a trillion dollars, and I, I let me a thousand billion dollars, <clears throat> which was money that was supposed to be spent on hospitals and schools and public services. Instead, was spent on 
super yachts and private jets and and villas and Swiss bank accounts. And and um, th this is an unsustainable strategy. You can't you can't be in a country with 141 million people and steal everything from them into perpetuity and expect them. They're just going to say, oh, yeah, great. And um, and he understood that he understood that that at some point the Russian people who needed that money would start getting angry and and, um, and, and they were we we saw some signs of that of Russians actually protesting against their government which is a pretty risky move they were definitely protesting against their government they hadn't gotten to the point where it was going to be out of control protests which right. would make the government fall but Putin understood that at any moment it could become like that and, and it's, it's not unusual I mean we saw in the Arab Spring you know a a uh, fruit seller set himself on fire in Tunisia, and then that led to the overthrow of the government. And we saw in Ka Kazakhstan in this year, in January, that they raised prices of, of liquefied gas that they use in their cars by 50%. And all of a sudden, the whole country was up in flames and, and the dictator was kicked out there. And so Putin was scared of that happening to himself. And, and so what does a dictator do when, when he doesn't want his people to get angry at him? He, he creates somebody else for his people to get angry at. He starts a war. And that's that's what this war is about. There's no ideology behind it. He doesn't care about the future of Russia. He doesn't care. He's not trying to rebuild a greater you know, Russian empire or you know, he's not trying to fight NATO. He's just trying to distract his people so they don't overthrow him. And it's just a simple, grubby money exercise that he's now you know, caused un, unbelievable hardship for all the people of Ukraine for his own selfish purposes, which is to stay in power. I think you put it very interestingly that it's not, we keep thinking about this in terms of his intention, you know, as you say, to expand the empire and, and get back territory he thinks he has lost. You say, look at the motivation and the brutality and the war crimes. He's not doing that because he has to. He's doing that because it gives him some kind of perverse pleasure that is that's frightening well he, he i mean the, the, he it gives him per, perverse pleasure but it also gives him something else which is he needs to be seen as scary he's got to be seen as brutal he's got to be seen as somebody who when he makes a threat everybody backs down because he, he's actually not all that scary i mean yes he's doing terrible oh. terrible things but i mean if you look at what what I mean, the Russian army has completely failed in this in their exercise. That they were supposed to take over Ukraine in two days. It turns out that the same corruption that caused him to start this war was pervasive in the military. And you know, they they were stealing the spare parts for the planes, and so they couldn't fly. They were selling them to the Indian Air Force. They were selling gasoline out of all the vehicles, so they couldn't drive. Um, I even heard a story about how how uh, uh, several Russian soldiers in two tanks sold their tanks to the Ukrainians for twenty five thousand dollars two two million dollar tanks they sold for twenty five thousand dollars, and the Ukrainian military said, you know, please come back with more, um, uh, and and so the the entire military has been hollowed out by the same corruption, and so he's yeah. he's terribly weak and he's got to look strong, and so the brutality that we're watching on on television is his almost desperate attempt to look like uh, uh, so, to look strong and to look uh, you know un, untouchable when in fact he's he's not particularly strong and he's very touchable but it, but in this kind of scenario with a man with that mindset there is also 
um, no clear end to this kind of a conflict because he's got countless bodies that he can force into action. Uh, yeah. The Russian people can, with a gun to their head, quite literally be sent off uh, to war. So it, it, how how does this unfold? What what how does it end if it does? And what should the West be doing now to try and create some kind of exit strategy? Well, so th this is this is the fundamental problem, which is that if I'm correct in my analysis that this is not about NATO and it's not about right. um, territory, that this is about staying in power, then there's nothing we can offer him because um, if he needs a war to stay in power, let's say that that somebody says, okay, he can have Crimea and Luzhansk, you know, that, that how does that satisfy his his right. need to stay in, in power, to be in a conflict? Um, if we say, you know, NATO is not going to expand, you know, none of these things will work. And and this is the, the fundamental flaw that I think a lot of European countries in particular have, which is that there's some kind of negotiation to be done with him. Right. I, I know this guy, not because I've met him personally, I haven't met him personally, but I know him from a conflict, my own personal conflict, which has been going on for more than a decade. And I know how he acts and he doesn't back down. He doesn't negotiate, he doesn't compromise. You know, if <laughs> I, I was having this discussion yesterday with somebody else who knew Russia well from a business perspective. And when you're in a negotiation with the Russians, you know, if, if you say 100 and they say 50, you're not going to settle at 75. You're either going to end up at 100 or you're going to end up at 50, depending on who's got who's stronger in the negotiation. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the same thing which is happening with this war. I, I don't think the war ends until one side defeats the other. And ideally, it's it's our side, the side of Ukraine and the West that defeats Russia and not the other way around. Because if it is the other way around, the next stop is going to be Estonia or Latvia or Poland. And then we have a face-to-face conflict with Putin, um, which we desperately don't want to do because I, I have this terrible fear that, you know, if if we're all put to the test, do we really want to go to war with Russia over Estonia? You know, a lot of people are going to say, well, wait a second, we don't even know where that is on a map. And right. I, I, I absolutely don't want this. And, and the moment that, that an Article 5 of NATO doesn't work, then Putin can do whatever yeah. he wants. But and has he, in a sense, gotten away with calling our bluff? I mean, we've heard a lot of Western countries, United States, Canada, others say, you know, but we can't go too far. We can't go too much because he's got he's got his hand on the, the new, you know, nuclear button like we can't start the Third World War. And as long as we kind of give him that in advance, he doesn't even have to use that. Of course. And 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 he's he's. I mean, he, look, his, his military doesn't can't even defeat Ukraine and right. um, and we're already folding. You know, we're saying, you know, you can do whatever you, you can massacre as many people as you want in Ukraine. That, you know, there, there is this thing called strategic ambiguity, which is what right. they what the Americans use vis-a-vis -vis China or on, on Taiwan. I don't know why we didn't have that same policy exactly. with Ukraine. We could yeah, have just, exactly. you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't, you know. Yep. You know, if you do something so outrageous, maybe we'll we'll start a war with you. And and believe me, if he can't fight a war with Ukraine, he doesn't want this war with NATO. He absolutely doesn't want a war with NATO because he'd be humiliated. And and so this idea that he's going to start World War Three, he he all he, all this stuff where we we say we don't want to provoke him, all that does is show weakness. And yeah. and weakness is actually more dangerous than showing strength. Strength is something he respects. 
weakness <laughs> takes advantage of. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and we've got these two things, which is uh, the West um, doing too little too late, really, uh, in terms of having the appropriate equipment inside the borders of Ukraine before he did this. We knew we knew it was coming. Uh, and now after the fact, we're we're using sanctions. They are having some bite. They are having some effect. Well, I mean, so the sanctions are having some effect on the asset side. In other words, we've frozen his savings, mm -hmm. the, the central bank reserves, and we've frozen the oligarchs money, which is great. And something that I was screaming from the rooftops to do before the invasion, because if we had done even a, a, a one tenth or one fiftieth of what we've done now in advance, he might have actually had a different uh, uh, strategy for the war because he didn't believe we'd sanction any of this important oligarchs at all. But the problem with it, with all the sanctioning the assets, and, and it's not a problem with it, we should absolutely do it, but, yeah. but there's, we've still left cash flow uh, 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 almost untouched. So every day he gets a billion dollars a day in, in the, for the sale of oil and gas every day. And the war costs a billion dollars a day. And so as long as people in Europe mostly continue to buy his oil and gas, he can continue to fund this war into perpetuity. And if he can continue to do that for a very long time, time is on his side, not on ours. Um, we all live in, you know, it looks like we have a, like a united front against Putin, but we all live in democracies. And as, as you know, democracies, the leadership can change when the voters yeah. go to the voting booth. And, and, um, and that's what he's banking on. He's, he's banking on, and, and by the way, he's seen this and he understands how this works. Remember, Assad was killing, he's killed half a million of his own people in Syria, created 5 million refugees. He was the complete menace of the world. And now we're not even talking about him anymore. He sits yeah. as, and so that's what Putin is banking on. He's banking that, you know, he's going to, you know, that we're all just, we're all so easily tired and distracted where our democracies are so easily changing from one person to the other that you know, some some new guy will come in or a new woman will come in and say, yeah. oh, yeah, um, we should actually engage with Russia. We shouldn't isolate them. And, well, um, and we're we're already seeing that with people like uh, uh, Macron in France. I mean, this notion that you can go and have a meeting with them and, and be rational and have a conversation and tell them there's a better way to play ball. I mean, it's obviously not working. We we I agree 100 percent. We need to be cutting off the. The billion dollars a day through oil supplies, but and and oil and gas supplies. But where where's Europe going to go to get that tomorrow morning? Well, um, they're not going to get it tomorrow morning. But but yeah. you know, the, the, I mean, th this is this is Germany's fault. You know, Germany was trying to build a pipeline to yeah. bypass Ukraine and become more dependent on Russian gas. Yep. You know, they're going to have to suck up their gut and do this properly because they're they're closer to the front line than we are ever going to be. Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, yep. we're all much further away from Russia. I mean, God knows what bad uh, characters were involved in those in, in those decisions that would put them in, in an immense, uh, you know, uh, security quandary. But they're going to have to do it because if they don't, Russia will eventually, you know, I mean, imagine imagine a scenario where, where Putin threatens Estonia. All of a sudden, we're not... Um, you know, doing Article Five anymore of NATO, right. and um, and then what? You know, 
all of a sudden all sorts of people are folding and you know then germany is right there on the front line yeah and i mean that's kind of, that's your other point which is this is just the beginning right if we think ukraine is the end game we're wrong there's lots of places he can go and will go if he chooses and if he feels he needs to and and he needs to he 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 can't stop this this war he's got to he's got to keep on revving it up because that's the only thing that keeps him from having the people around him turn on him and yeah. uh, and he will do that and and just about anybody who and, and the, I mean Zelensky has been clear about this um and and anybody in Russia who knows how the Russian mentality works all says the, say the same thing and so we can't look at his actions through the the lens of our own values and our own ways of resolving conflict because that's not how he does stuff he he yeah. he's in a brutal world where there's only a winner and only a loser yeah he has to be the winner and even if he loses 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 he's going to stay in the game and just do more and more terrible things until he gets the upper hand that's just how he operates in your book and and anybody who read the first one will will read this one as well because <laughs> It, it's almost unbelievable, the things that you talk about. It, it's hard for us who, and we live in democracies and not police states, although there's always, you know, overreach and overstep in places. But the things that go on, um, not only in the country, but as you say, your own battle with him, where he has followed you everywhere you've gone. Did you expect more of uh, your home country, your country of birth, America, your the place you now live, Great Britain? Did you expect more from them to help you in this fight against him? Well, both countries have ultimately, after lots of effort, helped me in my fight against him with the passage of the Magnitsky Act, and right. also Canada has. Yeah, the Magnitsky Act was named after my lawyer Sergei Magnitsky, who was murdered. And um, the Magnitsky Act sanctions and has sanctioned, and all three countries have been robust in sanctioning the people involved in his murder and the and the crime that he uncovered. And um, but it hasn't. It's been a hard slog at every step of the way because one of the things which I found is that every government wanted to just keep status quo. They nobody wanted to um, rock the boat. Nobody wanted to have any trouble with Putin. And th there was a, an absolute explicit. Um, Chamberlain-esque appeasement strategy that was going on in all all places, and, and the EU was even worse. And so the only way that I've achieved any of my goals was not because the governments were were sort of robust, but because um, parliamentarians in different countries were robust and holding the eventually holding the government's feet to the fire in in each place, in Canada and in in the UK, etc. Um, it's been a really hard slog, and and. Um, and I, I and I kind of you know people say, wow, Bill, you must feel vindicated by all that's happening now. And and the answer is, I, I you know, I feel heartbroken by everything that's yeah. happening right now. I, I mean, I, I was I, I couldn't have been more clear, more evidence based, and more persistent in trying to convince governments that that you know the only way to deal with Putin is to contain him. And look, here's the crimes that he's committed. You know, I could I could lay them out with who, who did them. And nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to either. They, they and were nobody right. wanted to pursue the 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 charges like go and track down that corruption, get the evidence so that we have it in our hands. Correct. And I mean, just for example, in, in Canada, we found money from the murder of Sergei Magnitsky going to Canada. I presented it to the Royal Canadian Canadian Mounted Police and um, they never um, did anything with it. I mean, uh, and uh, 
you know, that's pretty, pretty shocking. And, and I, I actually don't think that, that, and this is not just uh, Canada's problem, the UK no. didn't either, um, uh, but the United States did and France did and Latvia did and all sorts of places did, but Canada and the UK didn't. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that there's no, ca no capacity um, in Canada or the UK to prosecute um, Russian economic crimes. And, and now we need a lot of capacity because there's a crime of, of you know, monumental proportion being committed as we speak. And, and that crime has all sorts of financial implications that need to be prosecuted. Do you think the war crimes and the prosecutions uh, there, I mean, certainly Zelensky is trying and the rest of us are talking about, do you think anything like that will have any impact on him at all, on Putin at all? Um, I don't think that, that the threat of war crimes prosecutions will have any, any any impact on him because, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them. We should prosecute right. the hell out of every person involved in war crimes. <laughs> but but what will have an effect is um, if if governments start to not just freeze the money but seize it for the rebuilding of Ukraine because yeah. money is what all these people care about. The moment that that their money is not theirs anymore, I mean, the, 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 you know, they're they're ready to sacrifice a thousand people's lives. But when their money gets gets taken, that's that that that's like a whole new level of upsetness for them. And so that's what our goal has to be: is what you know, touch their Achilles' heel, go after their money, and go after it now. Let's not wait for this war to end. Let's right. grab that money now, because when it does end, we're going to need a hell of a lot of it to rebuild Ukraine. And they they are the perpetrators. They they're they they've committed a crime, a crime of aggression against a foreign country, unprovoked. Um, there's damages that are easily calculable. You can see it on your own television set. And we know where the money is and we should be able to get that money. And there should not be, um, you know, uh, timidness or um, or bad, uh, bad execution in getting that money. Sell the yachts, build the hospitals and schools. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key. There is at least some vindication for you and that people are coming to you for your insight and advice at this point. So finally, people are listening. People are definitely listening. There's no question. The doors that were all closed are all swinging wide open. Yeah. And I'm using that opportunity, you know, 24-7 uh, to speak to everybody <laughs> and anybody who wants to know what should be done, because I have uh, I have a decade of experience dealing with these yeah. issues. And and what I know can save a lot of time and effort in getting to the right place for for the Canadian government, for the U.S. government, for the U.K. government. And and um, and they are asking and, and we are talking. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. This is uh, a must read, given what is happening uh, in Ukraine and what could happen other places. Uh, Bill Browder, I can only thank you for your work um, and your support of your friend and lawyer, Mr. Magnitsky, the work you've done to make that a law and to the parliamentarians, uh, my colleagues worked on that uh, in the Senate here in Canada, but this is a must read. And I think people would understand what was going on a little better. Freezing order, the true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath by Bill Browder. Thanks for your time. All the best, stay safe. And uh, we hope to have another conversation soon. Thank you. That is it for No Nonsense for this week. We'll talk to you again soon.